everyone, and welcome to another amazing episode of The Joy of Being for busy working moms and women in business and beyond who are seeking to unplug from their worries and overwhelm to light up with insight and joy. I, your host, mom, and effortless lifestyle coach Marina Pearson, talk to transformational professionals, business owners, and creatives about what it really takes to have a business and life you can truly enjoy. And welcome to another amazing show of the joy of being. And on today's show, I have Simon Alexander Ong. He helps leaders, entrepreneurs, and organizations transcend perceived limitations so they can see just how powerful they are. And in addition to his work with his clients as a coach and a business strategist, Simon is regularly featured in well-known publications such as Forbes, The Huffington Post, Virgin, The Harvard Business Review, but to name a few. And he's been invited to speak at events and companies around the topics of leadership, entrepreneurship, and success. And some of the places that he has spoken at include the Institute Directors, London School of Economics, Barclays Google, London Tech Week, Enterprise Nation, and Virgin Startup. And on today's show, we spoke about the beauty and the capacity that we have for creativity to move beyond our problems and to find incredible solutions to them. So if you are having crazy problems in your business and in your life, this is going to be a great episode to tune into. Enjoy. So Simon, it's so wonderful to have you here today. And just before the podcast, we were talking about failure it just seemed like a good place to start the recording. <laughs> no, definitely. So I went with that. So yeah, let's talk about failure in business and in life a little bit more and about how we can do away with being so afraid of it. Mm, no, totally. I mean, failure, it's going to sound weird coming from a Chinese man because when you're brought up in any household, and specifically a Chinese household, you're always taught to succeed in academics, in the out of work, every single thing you undertake, you have to succeed. And so there's all that pressure. And so in a weird way, I'm quite grateful for the amount of failures I've gone through since my early 20s. And it started off really when I failed my second year of university. Can you just imagine how it was like when I failed my second year of university and I had to go and tell my dad, your dad, you've invested <laughs> three years into my university education, but unfortunately, I've got to set it up a year. And it didn't stop there because after university, my first job was with a company called Lehman Brothers. And we all know what happened to that company. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And that was almost a very quick failure that, that sort of came up upon me. You know, here was me thinking, I'm going to start this new career, this job. I've made my dad proud because I've turned myself around from failing a year to now landing a job in the city and earning a good salary. And in just over a year, I'm out of a job and having to reconsider my options. So that was almost my first experience with failure. And then in a way, it was a lucky failure. I guess in hindsight, blessing in disguise because it acted as a catalyst for me to want to explore actually what do I want to do with my life? Not what should I do because of expectations, because of things and beliefs that I'd grown up in my family thinking I had to do because that was their version of success and I was following the path that all my colleagues and peers were also doing. And it gave me the space to think. Because of those early face of failures, I guess, I just dived straight into this whole exploration phase in which I became quite a bit of an experimenter. And yes, I failed and I failed again in business early on. I know we touched on before we started the podcast, Marina, about clients and the right clients and the right message, the wrong message and all of this stuff. But one of the 
biggest lessons I've learned about failure through my own journey is that in the grand scheme of things, actually, failure doesn't really matter. And really what it's about is how we interpret it, how we see it, and how we react to it. And that, in a way, comes down more to our attitude, attitude to an event, because I've always been a big believer that events just are. Events in the world happen as they do. So there's not really any sad or happy, good or bad, problem or opportunity. It's what our mind attaches a word to that creates that reality for us. I love that. And when I was hearing you speak, you know the story about the Chinese farmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just suddenly realized that <laughs> mm. his horses one day go missing. The village people come and say, oh, that's awful. And he goes, maybe, maybe not. And then the next day... Mm his son comes back with his horses and a whole bunch mm. of them, new ones. And mm. they go, wow, that's amazing. And he goes, maybe, maybe not. Mm. A few weeks later, the son's out riding one of the wild horses that he brought back mm. and he falls off and breaks his leg. And everybody's like, ah, oh, that's so awful. <laughs> and he's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. And then the cavalry ride in. The cavalry are looking for people to join conscript. Conscript, is that even a word? <laughs> and... His son can't go to war. So Mm. the villagers are like, oh, that's so lucky. And he goes, maybe, maybe not. And this goes on for chapters. And I've never Mm. actually read it. It's just Mm. goes to that point and that's it. I've definitely heard that story before. And it's so powerful because as you sort of share, Marie, one hand, it could be bad luck, but then suddenly the next day, it turns out to be good luck. And I often thought that with the whole customized reality, in a way, it's our thinking about something that actually creates our reality. And the superpower we all have I don't think many of us appreciate it, is that at any given moment, we have the ability to choose one thought over another. Mm. And that's such a powerful gift in the sense that if we're aware that our thinking creates our reality, at many moments, we can just go, okay, what if I choose this different thought? Give it a new meaning. And actually, that single shift allows us to see things in a very different way. Yeah, like yesterday, actually, Mm. I had a lady who was going to come on my retreat here in Spain Mm. in September, and she decided that she didn't want to come anymore. She'd already paid Mm. me. Mm. And so my heart sank. I was in this (laughs) for hours going, I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. Blah, 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 blah. And then this morning, this new thought came in, and the new thought was, oh, well, actually, this is making space for someone else. Mm. a better person, a better fit for Mm. the retreat. And it was like, oh, that hadn't even occurred to me. Mm. No, totally. totally. It's amazing. It's amazing what our thinking can do, isn't it? Yeah. And going back to this sort of failure and judgment, because I guess, you know, when you see kids, Mm. they do something and they do it and they know they're being naughty. Mm. Maybe something breaks and they go, oops, well, never mind. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I love that about kids is a sense of wonder and awe when they're sort of looking at things around them. They're curious. They just do. And then what happens is the elasticity, if you will, of the mind remolds itself to taking that new information. And so they adapt to their environment. It's interesting because a lot of people talk about how we should teach kids languages early on because then they can take in and speak multiple languages very quickly at a young age. But when you get to adults, it's harder to learn new languages. And I was reading an article saying that's actually a myth. And the reason is because young children, they're forced to adapt. 
when you're a child, you're forced to adapt. You have to learn a language. You're learning so many things. The brain is bombarded with all of these things that they have to take in that the brain is constantly re-engineering itself in order to adapt to its surroundings. But as we sort of grow old, the mind kind of gets stale because we kind of set in and get comfortable with a limited number of beliefs or thoughts, and we kind of end up just going through routine. So we go through routine, and the mind kind of gets numb to adaptation, uh, which almost reminds me of the, the sort of quote Darwin came up with when he wrote his book on evolution, in that it's not the strongest or the most talented that survive, but it's the most adaptable. And it's the people that can adapt to changing environments and stimuli that actually are able to survive the longest. That's really interesting because today, just today, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about change. Mm. And in this context of breaking away from certain people in your life, Mm. going back to this neutrality piece of change is inevitable. Mm. It's a bit like a flower Mm. that just because it shifts form doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Mm. Mm. I really got to see that today. That is the same for us. Mm. No, it's it's interesting because I always noticed that what got me to one place isn't going to get me to the next place I want to be. And you start to realize that every next level of your life demands a different you. Now, not a different you in terms of your identity, but a different you in terms of, I guess, the way you see things. Now, for a lot of people, they may have got success in seeing the world one way, but that can only take you so far. It's like when a mentor is working with a mentee, they can only ever take that mentee as far as they've gone themselves. And so growth and evolution and uh, change is a natural part, I think, of our life because if it wasn't, then there would be no competition. There would be no creative stimulation and people would just kind of be settled in maintaining status quo and the things that we are. And we know that's not where innovation happens. Innovation happens, I guess, where you expose your mind to entirely different perspectives, which introduces you to new ways of thinking. I mean, I remember reading about Picasso. One of the things he said is to still like an artist. But a lot of people interpreted that as he copied other people's work in order to come up with his styles of painting. But what he was referencing when he said still like an artist was to look beyond your own industry, look beyond your own community, because it's when you look at events, organizations, and people outside of your own, that's when you expose your mind to new cultures, new insights, new perspectives. And to bring that into your industry allows you to be innovative in the way that Picasso was in his painting. It reminded me when I was in NYU, I went to New York University to a master's degree in, in music mm. business. And one of those terms was looking at different industries and how that could help the music industry. Mm. So what happened was, is we got ourselves out of the rut of thinking about the music industry on its own. Mm. So it was very much like the loop in the time back in 2005, they were started to go into the unknown, right? Mm. Or should I say the big players in the industry had basically just stuck their heads in the sand. (laughs) And there were a few innovators coming onto the scene that could then Mm. just take control of the market and bring a whole new way of being with music. Mm. So one of them was Spotify. Mm. Anyway, as they resisted to the change, which Mm. they did, they still wanted to sell CDs. They still wanted Mm. to sell albums as opposed to the market really wanted, which was Mm. singles. Mm. 
and mm. swap and choose and do it on retainer as in mm. subscription. And it was very interesting to watch because the resistance was so obvious. Mm. There was this real fear of change. There was this real fear of the unknown of what are we going to mm. do next? We have mm. no idea. Mm. But through this huge shift of digital from analog to digital, the industry has just flourished. And there's mm. this new birth of creativity that's happened. It's almost like it's leveled the playing field. Mm. You've got artists now doing it for themselves. And they can be mm. just as popular through just getting something out there that's viral, mm. coming up with their own creative ideas because of it. So the industry didn't fail, but there was a mm. point where mm. it looked like the industry might just crumble and then that would be the end of the music industry. But that was formulated in the minds of a lot of people. But what's birth was innovation, was yeah. different players in the market, was market leaders that hadn't mm. even been invented before. And it was cool to do this exercise of like, this is where the industry is. Mm. But this is what they could learn from, I did, I compared mine to the soft drinks industry and the cheap airline industry mm. and what mm. we could learn from that and compared what the airline industry had done and also what the drinks, <laughs> soft drinks industry had done. Yeah. And it was just very cool to just shift the perception of rather than being in it mm. to look at it and expand and go, well, what is possible? Because in mm. the unknown, everything's possible. Totally, totally. I mean, almost reminds me of the fact that uh, really about finding joy in the process, finding joy in the experimentation. And I think that's where insights get born, ideas get created, and I guess strategies get manifested. But the reason I see why so many people are sort of struck by failure is because we're so, society generally is so focused on outcomes. You know, outcomes, I guess, which well known to all of us are stuff like when this happens, then I'll be happy. If this happens, then I'll be successful. If this promotion arrives, then I can then do this, this, and this. And so we're afraid to fail because we don't think that will allow us to get that outcome. But if we take a step back, actually, there are far more outcomes in our life that are out of our control because it could be so many different factors at play. And if someone says, I'll be happy when, what does that mean that you're in the meantime? Sad, anxious, worried, depressed? So many people giving up their emotional well-being and attaching to something that could be distant one, three, five years in the future, and thereby giving up the joy in the present moment. Hmm. But you know, through my own sort of personal journey, I've come to learn that you know, there's a paradox there that we need to forget the outcome because most of the times there are things that are out of our control for that to happen and focus more in the moment focus more on the right now present moment and what is in our control, which is the daily habits, the rituals, the way we see things. And those are attitudes, those are all our control right now. And if we can focus on that, then actually those bigger things will worry about themselves in their own time. And it reminds me of a uh, story. I'm not sure you've come across Sarah Blakely, Marina. No, I haven't. Uh, Sarah Blakely founded a company called Spanx. And, uh, <laughs> I like the name. <laughs> Banks, and she's known for being the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. And I remember in one article, she uh, did an interview, I think it was Forbes or Entrepreneur, one of those magazines. And she said when she was a teenager, 
uh, going to school in America, her father used to sit her down at the dinner table. They didn't really watch television, so it was a nice family time together at the table. And the father would say to Sarah, Sarah, what did you fail at today? Mm. And Sarah was a bit confused during this time of her life, what her father was trying to get at, because she was thinking, I've made the cheerleading team, and, you know, I've got good grades at school, I'm making new friends. But whenever she would say a failure at these evening meals, her father would high-five her and sort of give her a hug when she's failed. And she said it was only when she started her entrepreneurial journey as a young adult, and some people may know her as participating in Richard Branson's equivalent of The Apprentice. She made it to the final, but she never won the competition. But yet her success is more than what the winner made post the competition, because what she had learned from that experience with her father was that failure is never an outcome. It's merely not trying. And so the lesson subconsciously her father was instilling in her was to constantly be growing your comfort zone because today's excellence is tomorrow's mediocrity and that growth should really be a part of your everyday. You can't rest on your laws because they may not serve you in a changing world. But what occurs to me too is that that attitude towards failure means we don't stay in that self-judgment for very long, Mm. if at all. And that's the secret because then you, it turns from being a failure into an opportunity to learn and have an insight about it, which then kind of corrects the course and moves you in a different direction. Mm, mm. No, it's so powerful. I mean, there are always going to be events which don't work our way or things that might be unexpected that might not be the way we imagine. And I always find we've got two ways to look at it. You know, we can look at it in a negative way which tends to be very unproductive so something doesn't happen the way you like it you might start to question why did this happen why me but very often there may not be even a reason why it happened Uh, and so we end up just in this vicious cycle of staying in the past and trying to understand why this occurred or in a very more productive way i guess is to reflect on what's the lesson and benefit of what happened and I remember when I started asking myself those questions when events didn't occur, and it was a bit weird at first because I started thinking, well, why would I ask myself what the benefit of this? Clearly, this didn't work out. But as I started to reflect more on the lessons and the benefits of what happened, that reflection allowed my mind to focus on activities that were more productive. So the lesson could be, for example, I need to do it this way next time, or maybe I need to try it this way. Or the benefit could be, fantastic, I got a lesson that I wouldn't have got otherwise. And actually, I became far more productive about events that didn't happen the way I intended. And they became catalysts, if you will, to coming back stronger. Can you give us an example? I know we talked about university, but I would love an example maybe of a major fail that you've had recently that as Mm. a result of that major fail has been a huge catalyst for you. Like one has catapulted you. Mm. (laughs) No, definitely. I mean, One of the, and I think this links a lot to what I've done recently, is in the past when I do speaking, so I do a lot of speaking work in addition to the uh, coaching and I guess the workshops I run for organizations. But I remember a couple of years ago when I was speaking, I would perhaps turn up very differently to an event that I was getting paid good money for and talking to a big audience, then going to a room with, I don't know, just 25 people in there. So I would show up often differently to both. And the fail was for me there is that I started to realize, am I wasting my time just doing these sort of smaller audiences? And I just started to think, okay, what can I learn from 
Why am I showing up differently to the both? And so I started experimenting and trying to work out how I could benefit more from different opportunities. And I just started thinking, well, how about if I show up as if I've always got a crowd of 500 people who've paid big money to come see me? So that single mindset should meant that when I turned up for a future event where it was only 30 to 40 people and I acted, talked, and presented as if it was 500 people in the audience, suddenly new opportunities started arising. Suddenly I started attracting inquiries and people said, actually, can you speak here? Can you speak there? I love to introduce you to this. I love to introduce you to that. So I think the failure there for me was treating different events and opportunities relative to what I was getting paid, which I don't think in hindsight now was a very productive way of seeing it. Thanks for that. I've just had a little insight. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I love these podcast sessions because I get free insights every time I speak to the guest. (laughs) 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 So... For someone that's listening in Mm. who feels like they've been failing and, you know, that's just a matter of perception. I know that we've been talking about a way of seeing it and how it doesn't have to be this awful thing and that it can be totally the catalyst towards something Mm. even more beautiful. What would you say to them? Mm. I think the first thing to say is that success and failure aren't opposites. And society instills that a lot in that if you haven't got this, you must have failed. Whether that is at school, if you haven't got A grades in certain subjects, you're deemed to have failed. And I think it's to appreciate that they aren't opposites. Because if we look at the education system, a whole very quick example is if you were a natural-born entrepreneur, a natural-born dancer, a natural-born artist, or a natural-born singer, well, the school system doesn't really have the benchmark in place to say you're good at any of those. Because according to the current system, if you're not good at math, physics, sciences, or languages, or so on, then you haven't succeeded. And so at a very young age, we're instilled that there is a big differential. Either you succeeded or you failed. But actually, it's appreciated that you can't experience the success you would like to experience, whatever that is for you, because for everyone, success is different in terms of their interpretation. You can't experience any level of success with some failure along the way. because by seeing failure as a stepping stone to success rather than the opposite of success, actually, it becomes more of an enjoyable journey. You know, there's a saying that goes, people get rewarded in public for what they spend years in private practicing, and there's nothing better than going to a concert to see a pianist who performs Mm. an incredible concerto, and people talk about the success, they applaud him at the end, but what they don't see, and I think social media exacerbates this issue, what they don't see is the failure, the practice he's gone through in the years, if not decades, in private, the battles he's gone through, or whoever it is performing in front of you, that journey is rarely seen by society. And that's why when we read in the press about these successes, we always focus on the now of their journey, as in all the outcomes they're experiencing, but forget they themselves also went on a journey just as we are. We're all on journeys, individual personal journeys, working out what are our insights what are our lessons that we're going to get from all the experiments resulting failures i mean failure is guaranteed i mean the whole concept of trying something new means you will fail because you can never get an instruction booklet that would tell you exactly step by step by step how it works otherwise the autobiography section waterstones would be pretty boring there'll just be one bible <laughs> here complete blueprint on how to get from a to z 
without failing. But as we know, there are multitudes of ways to get from A to B. And that's why we have biographies. We have different perspectives, different people's journeys being shared because it shows that it's more about finding your path rather than finding the path. And that's very important to reflect on. Yeah, that's so true. Like I've got this thing at the back here, this quote mm. back here, which says, all in the way you travel the journey mm. as a mm. big reminder. And then there's one here which says, no matter what road I travel, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, the analogy I like to use to get people to, to sort of try to understand is imagine you're sort of a buffet table. You're with some friends in a buffet. You can't physically eat everything from a buffet just like you can't consume every bit of information out there in the world because there's an overwhelm of information. Yeah. And so it's about when you go to a buffet, you might go around one, you pick up a few items from the buffet table and you come back and sit with your friends. What you notice is that each of your friends will have a different plate because they've gone up and picked different food to put in their plate. And then the second time you go, you might think, mm, I didn't really like that one, but like this one, so you pick more of it and less of something else. And that's all what life is about generally, is that you're always out there learning from different stimuli, whether it's programs, books, workshops, internet, videos, and you are bringing together the insights that resonate with you the most in order for you to form your philosophy, if you will. I don't know if you know much about martial arts, Marina, but uh, I, I sort of grew up doing a lot of martial arts, very stereotypical Chinese in that fashion, I guess. <laughs> and uh, one of my sort of inspirations growing up was Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee created a martial art called Ji Kunde. And uh, the funny thing is Ji Kunde wasn't invented before Bruce Lee, but he created Ji Kunde and he called it my martial art. In essence, what he did is he learned Kung Fu, he learned boxing, he learned all of these different martial arts. And he learned the inefficiencies of them, but he took the ones which resonated with him and thereby creating his own martial art called Ji Kunde, which was his philosophy based on all the lessons and insights he had from learning other martial arts. Very cool. I love that. And it's a gathering of insights as you go, basically. Mm. Um, when I was hearing you speak, the question I had that came to mind was, what's the distinction between feeling like a failure mm. and actually having failed? Mm. Mm. Well, I think, again, both of those come down to interpretation. I mean, whether you feel like a failure, that is very much about what we're benchmarking ourselves against because only you can give yourself permission to feel like a failure. You know, if you are comparing yourselves to something or someone, naturally we would feel like a failure. So if I compare, my, I might t undertake an action or an event, and if I compare the result or outcome I get from that to someone else who's done the same thing and it hasn't matched up to what that person's got, then of course I'm going to feel like a failure because I've done the so-called comparisonitis, which is I'm comparing my results to someone else, even though perhaps they've been doing that for decades, and this is my first attempt. And so it's natural that we will feel like a failure whenever we compare. And it's why we read so much in the press and media these days about people feeling depressed, people feeling like a failure, people feeling like they're not achieving, people feeling like they're not living a good life because of the pressures of social media. Because of when you log into your Instagram or your Facebook or your Twitter and you see people achieving great things or people traveling the world or people sort of having the body you might like or whatever it is, that in effect is stealing your joy. You know, it's the thief of joy. Whenever we begin to compare, it means we are creating an unattainable benchmark. How we change that 
is by shifting what that benchmark is. I've always been a big believer that as long as you are better and progressing more than the person you were yesterday, last month, last quarter, last year, that's the only person we should be comparing ourselves to. Because if we are progressing, then we shouldn't feel like a failure. Because even if we're progressing, even just a tiny percent every day, every one of us are in different lanes at different speeds, and we will get there at different times. We don't all have a set path, a set timeline, and a set guide. And so as long as we can say, yes, I'm better than who I was yesterday, I progressed that much more this week, I've shifted the way I see things that much more this week, and I'm starting to benefit, then there's no reason to feel like a failure, I think. Yeah, you know, as I was hearing you speak, one of the insights I had about comparison one time was wanting to feel the way that that person looked in the moment Mm. that I saw them. Mm. Mm. So like, oh my God, you know, this opportunity has come around and this is amazing. Mm. And I might be feeling in a massive funk Mm. and going, oh, like, I wish I was like, you know, I wish, how come I'm not? you know, as Mm. far as they are. But actually what I was really saying to myself was I want to feel the way that they look. Mm. Mm. I want to feel that sense of success that Mm. I'm not feeling Mm. right now. So I'm going to compare myself, you know, I'm comparing myself, but that Mm. is just like, yeah, beating yourself up, which actually what you're saying is just stay in your own lane. And the other thing that occurred to me as I was hearing you speak was it hadn't ever occurred to me Mm. that you can still feel successful even if it didn't work out. Mm. Mm. The feelings and the result, actually, Mm. they're completely separate. They actually have nothing in common. Mm. I love that, Marina, because I think it's so powerful. I mean, obviously, we care about what happens, but when we're not attached to the result or the outcome, Actually, that's when we are at our most powerful. You know, it kind of reminds me of a question I got asked when I did a talk a few months back. And someone said to me, do I see success as a destination? Because a lot of people talk about goals. A lot of people talk about, this is what I'm working towards. And I replied by saying, I don't see success as a destination, really. Because what, what happens next? If success is a destination, what happens next? And what tends to happen? These people are complacent or they enjoy the rewards of success and forget how they got there in the first place. And actually, success is more about who you are. It becomes an identity of how you show up, how you treat people, your attitude, how you go about running things, how you interact with your clients. It just becomes who you are. And so because it's not a result or a destination, it's just a process. Your whole life is the journey. And so the work is always unfinished because for you, it's just enjoyment of that process, the creative journey, the exploration of what's new, what could be interesting to pursue. And you're constantly adjusting and adapting to the stimuli of always being a student. And that's one of the biggest downfalls, I think. When people see success as a destination, they stop being a student. Yeah, what I really hear and what you're saying is being open and willing to learn new things and not to Mm. being open. Just am I Mm. open? Am I open to Mm. learning something new? Am I open to the shift and the change that this can bring about? Mm. Mm. Because only good can come from shifting. Only good can come Mm. from actually having our level of consciousness Mm. grow. And from what I've seen is this idea that we need to have clarity right from the outset Mm. And that if we don't, it, we're a failure. 
Because really what we're talking about is having the clarity of knowing this is the right way or this is the wrong way. Mm. And we don't know that until we've mm. given it a go. We've actually taken the step because we don't know how we're going to feel when we get there, mm. Mm. as in the decision that we make. So mm. this definition of success I love because it means that you're not working to this future that doesn't exist. What most people want is the feeling of success. But if we really understand that our outcomes can't give us a feeling, mm. then this game changer, because you can just experiment for the sake of experimentation mm. and not be attached to the outcome as you were talking about. Totally. I mean, it brings to mind this concept of flow, which, you know, having experienced it myself and talked to people about flow, it's almost that feeling you get when you find joy in the moment, when you're happy in the present with what you're doing. But you have a vision of what that is for, the context of what you're doing now, but that vision can be ever-evolving. It's not fixed per se, but it's a vision of where that could lead to. It's the possibilities, if you will. And so when we are in that moment of being joyous, happy in that moment with what we're doing today, with an idea of a vision of where that could lead to, that results in a sort of flow state. You know, people can relate to that where you might be doing some activity on your laptop or talking to someone, and then you look at your watch and you go, Wow, has it really been four hours we've been talking or four hours since I've been doing this project? And that's when you're a complete state of flow and focus, is because you're just enjoying that moment. But as you're doing it, your possibility ceiling is getting smashed all the time because one thing leads to another. You're just experiencing this flow, this momentum, if you will, such that. When you reflect, you feel you can never go back to the old you just because you want more and more of those experiences of flow. Yeah, and I remember listening. I read Chantal Burns book, Instant Motivation, and one of the things that really caught my eye was most people's definition of flow is something that you have to aspire to. But actually, mm. it exists because if you look at nature, that's what it does. It flows. Mm. It does its thing. And mm. you know, she asks the question rather than, how can we get into flow? She says, how can we actually spend more time there? Mm, mm. And I love that question because it kind of, mm. what it did was to just not make, it's the same with joy. It's like, mm. it's innate in us, right? So it's mm. not a place to get to. It's not something that we have to keep creating. It's something that mm. we are, but we can actually spend more time there. Mm, mm. And I think this is where society's got it wrong, is they always perception that we need to be chasing something. Whether that is chasing flow, chasing happiness, chasing a materialism, chasing success, chasing that gold pot under the rainbow, if you will. But actually, all that we want, need, and desire actually already within us. Hmm. It's actually already there, waiting to be accessed. And it reminds me of something Elizabeth Gilbert shared in one of her books and she's written books such as eat pray love and big magic and she said inspiration or wisdom if you will is universal and it might come knocking on your door whether it's the form of a whisper or a knock or a nudge to give you an insight however the universal wisdom doesn't care if you act on it or not it just wants someone to act on it and so if you don't it goes on to someone else and blesses them with that insight and it's why many people will come up with an idea and go, oh, I've got this great idea. 
And then four years later, they see someone else on TV doing the idea. Goes, I had that exact same idea four years ago, but they never acted on it because the wisdom and the universe, if you will, just keep moving from person to person to person until someone actually does something with an insight to make, make moves with it. Otherwise, it just keeps moving to different people. And I love that sort of spiritual way of seeing it because it's something that can't be described in words, but it's just that sort of moment we can connect with because we've all had those moments. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I remember reading that too and loving that because it really personalized it. And she was talking about her books, wasn't she? And how mm. somebody else had written the book. She never finished yeah. it, but somebody else had written it. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sort of what comes to mind as I'm hearing you speak is the oneness. Mm, mm. It's the oneness that creativity and flows through us all, but yet we are here to manifest wisdom's mm. intent. Mm. You know, as I was hearing you speak, I was thinking, well, I've been asking, so those are interesting. I decided to go into a Facebook group and ask for guests and mm. for the podcast because what I was looking for was a profile of mums who had mm. been through burnout and so forth and so on and who'd come mm. out of it the other end and I just wanted more stories around that. Mm. It was very interesting to see what happened because as a result of that call, I got a lot of women who doing the same thing as me. So working mm. with women mm. and mums to help them ditch the overwhelm and the stress and the anxiety to lead a more connected and joyful life. I was like, well, how does that fit with this, right? We're talking mm. about because actually you can be in the marketplace and still yet there'll be lots of people working to solve the same problem. Mm. So I'm mm. curious, her insight around this works with that. Hmm. No, I find, I find this interesting because it's the synchronicity I think she touched on when she explained the idea is that there can be so many different people around the world any one time discovering or starting or exploring something that you're doing. And I think it's the beauty of humanity, but also the oneness in that all of those synchronicities happening at one time, it's all because of insights, it's all because of the universe, it's all because something's been blessed, whether that's in a dream, in a moment, in an experience that has come forth. We are all working from the same drawing board. We are all working from the same source, expressing it in our unique way. If we are doing it, even though we might all be doing something similar, there will always be differences in the way we deliver it because just by the very nature that we are different people means that we have different likes, dislikes, preferences, hates, loves, etc. And that gets all fleshed and molded into, you know, some people call it authenticity or whatever the word is, into how you deliver a message or sort of the value in whatever medium you're doing it on. And everyone would do it in a different way. And I think that's what creates options for people to experience that in. and it's beautiful to have those options for people you know i just got a really clear vision of that which is wisdom choosing the people that it wants to delegate the job to mm. Mm. and it's like an army of people who have been chosen for that job mm. and being doing it in different parts of the world for different reasons mm. but we've all come to that same insight and conclusion and a different expression of it because here's also what I heard was not everyone will resonate mm. with just what that person, you know, you will attract the clients that you attract because mm. of resonance, because of your story, 
that what might be different, you might have come to the same conclusion, but you'll have a different experience, a different story, a different, just maybe a slightly different angle on it, expressed mm. in a different mm. way that actually appeals to a different audience or that appeals slightly mm. to different people. Yeah, that's kind of what I heard. Mm. And it's interesting because I think when people start businesses or explore their passions, one of the things that stops them is they're trying to please too many people. They try and say, yeah, well, I'm not sure if this group will like it or that community will like it. But from what we've just explored and what you said, Marina, is that every one of us in the way we express something, the way we communicate something, the way we are, will attract different people. And those are the people that are right for us. Now, what we do won't be right for everyone. And that's fine because you know, to do well in anything, you don't need everyone to sort of like what you do or be your sort of audience. It's kind of why, you know, here in the UK, the supermarkets, Aldi and Lidl, will be very focused on a particular set of customers. Waitrose will be focused on a very specific set of customers. And Harrods will be focused on a very different set of customers in itself. But they all know what they're about and they, they, that helps them to communicate to their core audience. Yeah, as you were talking, what I heard was the universal hymn sheet. <laughs> there's a universal hymn sheet that we're all singing from we just get told when we're supposed to sing and when we're supposed to express it and it's the same universal hymn sheet that we're all Mm. singing Mm. from what i also heard in what you were saying just came to me was the right kind doesn't mean the easy one (laughs) (laughs) Because we can often think that right means easy. But what I've seen time and time again is that we might attract the right client. Mm. But we also, that right client might be something that we need to learn. Mm. Mm. Totally. I mean, the right client could be giving us the challenge we need at the moment in order to level up, to be that better coach or service provider or whatever it is that we're delivering. And I think that's always a nice way to see things that occur like that is that challenges are probably the universe's way of basically telling us to level up, to sort of move up to that next level, to be the person ready to take on that next level client and embrace it, if you will. Because if we view it as a challenge, then it becomes the enjoyment of taking on that new responsibility. I interviewed a guy called Chris Kenny. And one of the things we were Mm -hmm. talking about was radical decisions where he, for example, went from having a five-figure income, I think it was, to a seven-one. Like, And who he had Mm. to become in the process of actually going, right, Mm. making that decision, let's do this. (laughs) And what I heard when you were talking, I was like, level up, bitch. It's your turn. Let's go. Let's go. Like an army officer, you know, like, come on. (laughs) It's a drill. 5 a.m. in the morning. It's time pushing you into that ditch and like getting you up that wall and training you for something far exactly, bigger and more exactly. expansive. And I remember having a conversation with Jamie Smart, who you know too, because we met mm. on his course. Ooh, yeah. It was when I was going through my divorce and mm. he said something to me. He said, you know, I know you may not be able to see this right now, but this is opening you up to something far greater, far bigger, far more than what you even realize. And he was right. So Mm. what I see is, is why wouldn't that be the same thing for all of those, what we perceive as difficult experiences? 
Mm. It's a bit like the tough, <laughs> the tough uh, attitude, you know, the tough, tough up conversation mm. that your best friend might go, you know what, you're being a wanker. Just like, <laughs> I can tell you that because you're my friend, right? Mm. But you're being yeah. an absolute wanker. Now, mm. had you seen your behavior? Well, no, I hadn't. Well, mm. maybe it's time that you did because it obviously mm. isn't working for you. Mm. Mm. A bit of tough love. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did, and I like the, uh, you, you mentioned your other interviewee about sort of the seven figures and uh, the process of getting from five to seven figures. And this is one of the things I've noticed, you know, sort of my exposure or conversations with multimillionaires. It's not really about the money because if it was, the likes of Branson would have already retired but actually, the likes of Branson are still opening up more virgin brands, more companies, more accessing more opportunities. But really what it is, when you ask them and hear them talk about their journey, it's really the money enters it because they talk less about the million or the billions, but it's more about the person they had to become in order to make that wealth. The journey of themselves, if you will, in the mind before they were ready to receive that money. Yeah, that's an amazing point, actually. And what I heard today, what you were saying was it's already about what they learn from the experiment Mm. and what their insights Mm. are around the experiment. Mm. Because Mm. what I've got to see, and I don't know if you resonate with this, Simon, is when we explore an area of our life that looks really complicated, looks really difficult, Mm looks really unclear, looks very Mm. muddy. Mm. If we keep resisting it, we're never going to get the insights Mm. of that area of our life as deeply as if we just go head on. I remember Mm. about two years ago, my financial situation needed a shift and a change. And I had been denying it for quite a while, but it got to the point Mm. where the universe is like, nah, (laughs) tough love conversation Mm. is coming up. And an experience happened where a tenant didn't pay and I was holding on, holding on, holding on. And then it was just something I can't do this anymore. Mm. And I was living an existence of, yes, I've got money coming in, but Mm. the cash flow was erratic. And so suddenly Mm. I wouldn't have enough money. Then I would have money coming in again, but it was all a bit Mm. disjointed and I hadn't really created much of a buffer. Mm. So something had to change and I saw a course and I was like, I don't even have enough money in the bank to pay for it. But Mm. something deep in my inside of me and my heart said, yes. Mm. Wow. What a journey. (laughs) What a journey that's been. You know, now every month I do my income statement Mm. and I've got a budget for the year and I know what I'm spending my money on. I know what comes in and I know what comes Mm. out. I know how much money I have to spend on different areas. Now, All of that used to scare the crap out of me, but it's because I hadn't given it the opportunity to explore it and experiment with it. And as I went, Mm. I realized that A, there was nothing to fear, and B, Mm. my insights now were allowing me to get more clarity in the area that I wasn't so clear on. Mm. Mm. And that was huge dividends. The same as can be true for someone that doesn't want to look at the numbers. Mm. But yet the minute that they start getting interested or they have insights, they start to manage it in a different way. They're able to look at a balance sheet mm. and go, yeah, okay, what's going on here? 
rather than going, that doesn't exist, I can't deal with it. <laughs> but there are certain things, like I'm sure Richard Branson is balance sheet and goes, what's going on here? You need to tell me. You know, He has his conversations with his accountants mm. and bookkeepers and so forth, but he's not going, mm. oh God, I can't look at my balance sheet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, like that's kind of what came to mind as you were speaking. It's like, what do I want to learn more about that I'm shitting my pants about that I don't even want to look at? <laughs> and I always find there's a reason why something comes up in the mind that we're curious about. You know, any given moment, there's something that pops in my head and go, oh, maybe I should look more into this or I should look more into that. And I usually find that's a sign. It's a sign that maybe I should, yeah, maybe I should block out some time to do a bit more digging or learn a bit more about this area. And that's just part of the growth. It's just part of as we scale, as we build who we are and we move to new levels in our life, it means we are faced with new challenges. doesn't mean the challenges stop. They just get bigger what? and they get different. <laughs> oh, no, that's not fair. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to get really depressed now for the rest of my day. That is not fair. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's part and parcel of life, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, what creates the life experience is that as we move and we enter new territory and we create new surroundings and we level up in different ways, Yes, it's exciting. I mean, it's all part of any journey in life. It gets more exciting. But at the same time, you're always going to get a challenge of some sort, but they perhaps just are different. You know, the challenges you face as you begin a journey will be very different to the challenges you face when you're midway through your journey, will be very different to when you're employing, say, 20 people. And it's just, I don't know, I just find this getting an understanding that one, if you are on the journey and you're experiencing joy along the way, that you're grateful for the journey, that we're grateful for the opportunities to be on this journey. We're grateful for the fact that we can do things with our skills, our talents, and our gifts. And I think when we come from that place of gratitude, it creates an opening for abundance because it's telling the universe that you're grateful for the gifts it's given you. You're grateful for the talents it's instilled in you. You're grateful for what it's given you so far, and you're creating a space to have more of that. My, my, yeah, I, I'm, I'm mindful of the time and wanting to ask you a question, which I love to ask my, of my client, mm. my guests, which is, what are you giving yourself permission to do more of these days? Mm. I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think for me, it's definitely giving myself permission more to slow down. Uh, <laughs> because I think, especially when you live in the city, it's very easy to fall into the trap of always feeling like you've got to do something to keep you moving, to keep you sort of having some momentum. And now while I'm a big proponent of doing over thinking and sort of procrastinating, also think it's important to slow down. I'm definitely giving myself more permission to do that, whether that's through blocking out moments of my day to just not be distracted, spend time in nature, I found swimming to be a great way to slow down because swimming is relaxing, but I'm not exposing myself to any stimuli like smartphones or emails or uh, demands on my time. So yeah, give myself permission more to slow down because what I found is often when we slow down in a very paradoxical way, we can speed up because slowing down allows us to ruminate, if you will, on thoughts and insights but also allows us to see things at a very broad level rather than being caught up and stuck in the middle of something that is causing us some sort of stress or making us feel like there's too much to do 
it reminds me of a story I read a number of years. I was reading this book and it touched on a story I've not heard about before about Thomas Edison in which he would go fishing every day. But uh, the interesting fact of the story wasn't the actual fishing, but it was that he never caught a single fish during his time of fishing. And the reason he never caught a fish was because he never used bait. And he explained that the reason for not using bait was because no one would disturb him and not even the fish. And he would credit a lot of his insights to experiments, to the inventions that he had those breakthroughs for, for those moments in his workday that he would block out to go fishing, in inverted commas, for a couple of hours per day. That was his way of slowing down in order to speed up, if you will. I love that. I'm going fishing now takes on a whole new meaning. (laughs) So Simon, thank you so much for today. I'd love to keep talking to you, actually. I'd forgotten how fascinating you are. And that's not (laughs) said with any sarcasm at all, by the way. It may have sounded sarcastic. It wasn't. I really mean it. So if somebody is curious and wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Yeah, best way is social media. So if you are using Instagram or Twitter, the handle is at Simon Alexander O. That is S-I-M-O-N-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-O. Or you can access my website at www.simonalexanderong.com. So those are the best ways to get in touch. You can connect with me there and feel free to drop me a message if you've got any questions following this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Simon. It was an absolute delight to have you on here today. And I'm sure that the listeners have had a right, well, I don't know, actually. They may have hated it. (laughs) I hope not. Um, We look forward to hearing some feedback, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it up. (laughs) Until the next time. Bye for now. And there you have it. Another wonderful episode of The Joy of Being. If you loved what you heard here today and it's been helpful, why not subscribe or share the podcast with others? And if you're curious as to how you can experience more joy in your life and feel carefree, then I invite you to download your Joy Catalyst Scorecard at www.marinapearson.com scorecard, which will help you identify the joy gaps and what you can do to fill them. So until next week's episode, remember... You are the joy you seek.